Relationship Alive is my offering to you to help you have the most amazing relationship possible. If you're getting a lot out of Relationship Alive, please consider a donation to help ensure that we can continue. To choose something that feels right for you, visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And deep gratitude this week goes to Laura, Madeline, and Stella. Thank you so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. Now, today's show is all about improving communication. After all, good communication can make all the difference in keeping you connected with your partner, especially in difficult moments. If you're interested in taking your communication to the next level, then along with this episode, check out the free guide that I put together with my top three relationship communication secrets. These three things will totally change for the better the way that you communicate with your partner about everything. To download the free guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And finally, if you're on Facebook and looking for support in your relationship, come visit us in the Relationship Alive community. We've created a safe space there with more than 1,400 other members for you to talk about your relationship and get help. That's the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. We've spoken a lot about communication on this show. And in today's episode, we're going to cover how the specific language that you use affects your relationships. The words that you choose matter. And today, you're going to find out why. You know, this podcast was actually born in some ways more than 20 years ago when I was in a class in college called The Psychology of Interpersonal Relationships. In this class, I gathered twice a week with a bunch of students there in a circle for three hours, and we basically dealt with everything that came up between us right then and there. If you've ever heard of an encounter group, well, that's exactly what we were doing. One of the books that was on the required reading list for the class was called You Just Don't Understand by Deborah Tannen, and it was about the different ways that men and women communicate. This book, after it came out, spent four years on the New York Times bestseller list. So you can imagine the effect that it's had on our culture and what we've come to know about language and gender and how we create meaning and understanding with each other. When I started Relationship Alive, one of the people I knew I had to interview was Deborah Tannen, and it took us two years to coordinate this time together. She's here on the heels of releasing her new, newest book, You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. And I'm so excited to have her with us here today to discuss how language impacts our connections and what you can do to improve the way you communicate with the people who matter to you the most. If you'd like to download a complete transcript for today's episode, please visit neilsatin.com slash language, or you can always simply text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Deborah Tannen, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Hi, what a, what a pleasure and privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. And the feeling, as you can tell, is mutual. Um, so let's start with you just don't understand. And, you know, we were talking for a few moments before we officially got started. And as you mentioned, it's a classic. It's something that has defined how we look at gender dynamics in, in communication and I'm wondering for you what you've noticed about how that book has impacted 
people in your in the world around you and also how you've seen it affect culture because i know that for me personally not only did it give me a, a much deeper understanding of what was happening and how i communicated but it made me want to change it made me want to shift so that i could find more uh common ground whether i was talking to men in my life women in my life and at this point you know people all over the spectrum of gender so how have you seen that book shift what is actually happening in our culture? It has been overwhelming um, to notice how much of what I wrote about in that book has become kind of part of the landscape, I would say, of how people think about relationships and conversation. I, I guess the most striking one is uh, why don't men ask directions? That was <laughs> When I put that in the book, I don't think anyone had talked about it, but a number of the um, interviews that I had very early on had picked up on that. And, and then it became so much a part of the culture. People were sending me napkins, cocktail napkins, real men don't ask directions, uh, jokes going around. Um, why did Moses wander in the desert for 20 years, 40 years? <laughs> um, maybe one of my favorites. Why does it take so many sperm to find just one egg? <laughs> and you hear a little bit less about that now that we all have GPS devices, but it really doesn't change things that much. Uh, just recently, this is really funny. Had it, my, my research method is um, asking people about their own lives, listening to people um, more and more. For the current book, I actually interviewed people, but in the beginning, I didn't do that. Uh, and the idea of men not asking directions was just one example that a friend of mine gave me. I just asked her, what do you and your husband argue about? And she mentioned he won't stop and ask directions and we get lost and it frustrates me. I was talking to just that friend not long ago and asked her, well, now there's a GPS. That doesn't happen, right? She said, it still happens. <laughs> he doesn't want to use the GPS. He says, I don't need her to tell me what to do, where to go. I know how to go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a long, a long answer. Um, yeah, and I think just the idea that women and men might have different ways of, of speaking um, has has become almost, I guess, just accepted for many people. You know, clearly, not everybody. And um, several of the scenarios I talked about are now very, very much part of the part of the public. Uh, I guess knowledge knowledge bases or something like that. Yeah, and um, do you want to touch for a moment on because there, of course, have been critiques of your work and and um, what have you seen in terms of when people stand up and say, "No, nah, this isn't this isn't really how it is," and where are they typically coming from? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, and I and I should say, I guess for maybe about a year after the book came out. Um, my book became, um, was, was very frequently criticized, especially in the academic world. Um, it was criticized for, uh, generalizing, for saying all women and men are alike, for, um, downplaying, or in some people thought I was ignoring power differences. And, and by the way, that led me to write the book, The Argument Culture because it was so surprising and shocking to me that people in the world of academia, which had been my intellectual home for so many years at that point, and, and really um, my oasis, you might say, in this wild world, I loved my academic job, my academic colleagues. So it was shocking to me that what I saw as a search for truth was leading people to accuse me of saying things I had never said. Mm. <laughs> led me to ask, why would they do that? And I ended up writing the book, The Argument Culture, in which I just, just just dissected a bit our tendency to approach everything as a fight, a debate, an argument. And then you're motivated to look for arguments to make the other person look bad, ignore things the other person actually wrote or said that would make them look good. So, yeah, that's the background. But to answer those those uh, complaints, obviously I know that 
there are power differentials in our culture between women and men. In fact, I do write about how the style differences that we uh, often have, and, and I never say all women, all men, I always say tend to, uh, many, often, most, uh, how these very style differences can lead to reinforcing the power um, of, of those who use the styles that I associate with, with men. And I actually wrote a whole book about the workplace. That was the next book after You Just Didn't Understand. That book is called Talking from Nine to Five. Uh, and I and I show there how styles that are common among women when used in the workplace lead them to be underestimated, to be seen as less confident than they often are, um, to be overlooked, uh, to and not not um, receive credit that they deserve. And 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 clearly, there's also just sexism. So I would never say that. All discrimination is simply based on style. Obviously, that's not the case. Just that this is one thing that has a role to play there. Um, and as for um, generalizing, you know, there's almost an irony there. I did not start out as an expert on gender. My field was cross-cultural differences. My dissertation and my first book were about New York conversation. <coughs> excuse me. My dissertation and my first book were about New York as compared to California conversational style. <laughs> I grew up in New York City, uh, Eastern European Jewish background. I think that's relevant. And I uh, was getting my PhD at Berkeley in California. And um, my dissertation was an analysis of a conversation involving three New York Jewish speakers, and I was one of them and two Californians who were not Jewish and one British woman um, who actually was, was half Jewish, but I don't think that affected her style much. And so I had so much to say about how cultural influence had an effect on the ways people were using language in conversation and therefore the effects of their ways of speaking on the conversation. Uh, I had written much about Greek compared to American conversational styles. I had lived in Greece and I speak Greek. Um, and so clearly I knew <laughs> that that gender was only one of many influences on our styles. And the first book that I wrote for general audiences, and maybe kind of interestingly, the one that I really had ambitious for, the one that I thought, ah, this is going to change the world. People are going to see their thinking psychology, and, and sometimes it's linguistics, it's use of language. Um, that book was called That's Not What I Meant. Hmm. And it was about all the ways that our conversational styles, our ways of speaking, our ways of using language are influenced by ethnic background, regional background, class background, age, how all these influences on style uh, affected our ways of, of uh, speaking, having conversations. And, and of course, the way people see us, the way we see them. Um, so, uh, clearly I knew that gender was not the whole story. Yeah. And I think why we're here is to get more, to get more of the meat around how, you know, the ways that we use language, how that has an impact. And you, you know, when I read, you just don't understand, I identified uh, a lot with some of the more feminine um, speaking styles. Um, probably had to do with how I was raised and, you know, interacting with my mom. I, I, I don't know exactly. My dad was a psychologist, so he encouraged me to talk about my feelings. And, you know, that, there, there you have it. it. Probably Maybe it doesn't take much more than that. And yes. uh, go Sorry. ahead. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and I never actually would say feminine style, masculine style. Great. Uh, I tend to say ways of speaking associated with women, ways of speaking common among women uh, or men. Um, and as I said, I, I will often say, I will always say something like tend to, maybe, you know, may, most. But I think it's, it seems to be the way our minds work that people walk away thinking, Women do this, men do that. This is feminine, and that's masculine. But I, but I would never put it that way. And and you're so right. Uh, nobody's gonna 
no two women and men are alike. Think of all the people you know. We've all got so many other influences on our style. Oh, I'll give you an example right right up front. One of the things I wrote about in that book, and, and, and it came, traces back to my work in That's Not What I Meant, when I wasn't focusing only on gender, uh, was the use of indirectness. So there was a conversation I, I discussed there. A couple are riding in a cart, and the woman turns to the man and says, um, are you thirsty, dear? Would you like to stop for a drink? And he's not, so he says no. And then later, when they get home, it turns out she's kind of frustrated. She had kind of wanted to stop. And it was the man who told me this anecdote, and he said, why does she play games with me? Why didn't she just tell me she <laughs> wanted to stop? And I, my response was, well, she probably didn't expect the yes-no answer. Uh, so if she said, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? She probably expected you to say something like, I don't know. How do you feel about it? And then she could say, I don't know. How do you feel about it? <laughs> and then they could talk about how they both feel about it. So if they ended up saying, well, I'm kind of, he ended up saying, I'm kind of tired. Do you mind if we don't? That would have been fine. Uh, or if he said, well, I'm not thirsty, but if you want to, we could. That would have been fine. That would have been great. And that's where I began talking about message and meta-message. So, yeah, the meaning of the words, the message was a question, an information question. Do you want to stop for a drink? But the meta-message, what it means that she asks him in that way is, I don't want to make a demand. I want to know how you you feel about it before we make a decision. And we can then, it's, it's starting a negotiation, and then after you find out how everybody feels about it, you make a decision taking everybody's preferences into account. So when she gets an answer, no, it, she hears a meta message, I don't care what you want, we're only going to do what I want. Because <laughs> he didn't mean it that way. He had a different idea about how a conversation could go. So he assumed he can say no. And if she wants to, she would say, yeah, well, I'm thirsty. Do you mind if we stop? And that would have been fine with him, too. It was these different ways of going about that. Uh, now, it's kind of interesting. I included that example in the book. That's not what I meant. And I repeated it in the introduction to You Just Don't Understand. Uh, in the context of saying, I think it was in the introduction, I had said, here's an example I had given. Both styles are equally valid. <clears throat> and uh, it had been uh, included in a review of the book. It was actually a Canadian newspaper, I think, where they said, so women have to understand how men mean it. And they didn't put the second part Men have to understand how women mean it. And I use that to say it's very easy for people to hear my examples as one is right and the other is wrong. Mm. And I really don't, I never take that position. I always take the position styles work well when they're shared and don't work well when they're not. So this is a long way of leading up to what I was going to uh, kind of an answer to your question about generalizing. Um, so the, the, conclusion of that whole discussion is that women tend to be more indirect when it comes to getting their way. That is, you have something you want, but you don't want to impose it. So you kind of open a negotiation. And I have lots more examples of that in this new book about women friends. You're the only one I can tell. I have lots of examples of how that creates problems uh, between women and men and just among women friends. So we can give examples of that if you're interested. But the very first paper I ever wrote and ever published in linguistics was based on conversations that I had been part of where I was the one who was direct, talking to a man who was indirect. And my explanation was cultural differences. Uh, now, I thought of it at the time as American versus Greek. Greeks tend to be more indirect than Americans. Looking back, I would say the fact that it's a uh, New York Jewish style probably partially explained my tendency to be more direct. So all of this is by way of saying um, that that not only uh, are these generalizations not applying to everybody, but that 
even in my own experience, something that is uh, associated with women and is more typical of women in this country when it comes to getting your way. Um, I, I know because even the first paper I ever wrote, I instantiated the opposite style. Hmm. Yeah, and it, I'm just struck in this moment of how, by how I think it would be common to assume that, oh, well, that means just kind of like what you were saying, that the direct style is more effective. So when you're having communication issues in your marriage, let's say, try to be more direct. And what I'm hearing in this moment is this um, question of how do we develop an appreciation for different styles of communication so that we're able to bridge the gap in styles more effectively? I think the most important thing is to be aware of style differences. Being more direct might help, but being more indirect or more attuned to indirectness might also help. And I'll give you this example that came up in a class I was teaching at Georgetown. It was a graduate seminar, um, and it was about workplace communication. And it came up that um, papers have been written, Charlotte Lindy is someone who wrote one, um, analyzing interaction that is conversation in the cockpit of airplanes that led to uh, accidents. And these were studied in order to find out whether there were ways that the pilot and co-pilot were using language that could improve to prevent future accidents. And there was one in which this was real. Uh, the uh, pilot had not suspected a problem. The co-pilot had suspected the problem. He called attention to it, but didn't say it in a direct way. He said it in a kind of indirect way. And so the pilot overlooked it and the plane crashed. This is the most extreme example of a negative result from indirectness. And in the class, we were discussing that pilots were now being trained, sorry, co-pilots were now being trained to be more direct. There was a Japanese grad student in the class, and he said, well, why don't they just train the pilots to be more attuned to listen for indirect meaning? And it was not surprising to me that this came from a Japanese speaker, uh, much has been written about how indirectness plays a very significant role in Japanese communication. Um, and there is lots written about how that um, the purpose that it serves. If people feel that they understand each other, that maybe you could say a meta message of understanding, of closeness, comes from the indirect communication. We understand each other so well, we can uh, get meaning without having to say it outright. Um, in fact, someone named Haru Yamada, who was a student of mine, has written a book about Japanese compared to American communication. And she says that the most highly valued communication is would be translated into English as belly talk, and that is silent communication, where you get your meaning across without having to put it into words at all. Um, so I'm suspecting that people listening depending on their own styles and how they've been raised and how they've come to uh, view language, some are going to be thinking, yes, 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 indirectness is great. <laughs> and others are thinking, no, no, no. <laughs> it's a better world if everybody just said what they meant. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I think it's, it's really tricky because the ways we tend to communicate are self-evident. Can I give you an example of this? Yeah, please. Um, yeah. Um, so I was actually, I came to a, um, I showed up for a conference where I was going to be a speaker, a plenary speaker. Another friend of mine was also, her name was Judy, was also going to be a plenary speaker. And that conference organizer, when I arrived, said, Judy is not going to give her paper. She called me this morning and she said, I'm coming down with something. I feel horrible. Um, do you, do you, uh, you know, if you really need me, I'll come, but, but it's really, I, I'm feeling very bad today. And the organizer said to me, and I told her, I need you to stay home and take care of yourself. Now, that's indirect, right? right. So I thought this is terrific. What a great example of indirect communication and how well it worked. Uh, so I said to the organizer, Hey, can I use that in my talk today? 
And she said, yes, yes, you should. It was excellent, perfect, direct communication. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why did she think it was direct? Because the meaning was clear and it worked. Judy felt better that she didn't have to make a demand, didn't have to let her friend down. The organizer felt better because she could feel that she made the choice to accommodate her friend. And um, I have so many examples like that where it just works works so well. But then I also have examples, again, in my uh, book about women friends, where it can lead to confusion if you have different styles. So here's an example. Um, this was uh, two women. They had gone to college together, so they knew each other. Um, and a, a third person who had gone to college with them was in town visiting the one. And when he was with her, he said, hey, uh, are you in touch with so-and-so? I understand that she lives here. And she said, yeah, I'm in touch with her. Hey, I'd like to see her too. Okay, she said, I'll, I'll find out if she's free. She called the friend, said so-and-so is in town. He'd like to see you. Um, if you're free, I could bring him over. Would you like that? And she said, yeah, sure, bring him over. So she did. She thought everything was fine. The next day, she got a call from that friend, and the friend was livid. Why did you bring him over? I hate him. You know I hate him. <laughs> and she was so puzzled. She said, but but you, you said I should bring him. And she said, you should have known by the way I said it that I didn't mean it. <laughs> now, <laughs> that sounds insane. <laughs> people don't share the style, but it would have been self-evident to people who do. Um, I have one more example. It's a um, north-south example mm. um so i was talking to a friend who is this the the don't know i don't know yes, much about yes, that yes, person yes, i love yes, this yes. yeah yeah so i was talking to a friend from south carolina and i asked him i asked her about a guy that we had some slight dealings with but we didn't didn't you know wasn't a, a close friend and i asked her what she thought of him and she said i don't really know him and I said, I think he's a jerk. And she said, that's what I just said. <laughs> and I said, huh? <laughs> so and she explained, in South Carolina, you cannot say someone is a jerk. You have to proceed on the assumption that if you knew him long enough, you would find something to like. So I don't really know him means I haven't found anything to like about him. Now, this made sense to me, although it didn't, and I, I believed her, <laughs> but I was a little incredulous. Uh, but luckily, before too long, I had met someone who at a kind of a gathering for the first time, and he said he was from South Carolina. So I asked him, this is research opportunity now, I asked him, what would it mean if you asked someone what they thought of someone and the person said, I don't really know him. He said, that means he's a no good, no count. <laughs> so the meaning was completely clear <laughs> to him, would have been to someone else from South Carolina, was opaque to me. So I could complain, that's no way to communicate. She should have been more direct. But think about it for a moment. Being more direct would have made her come across to other people in South Carolina as an unacceptable person. And I cringe to think what she would have thought of me if she didn't know me. Mm. When I say about somebody, I think he's a jerk, I'm saying something that you simply cannot say in that culture. So there are ramifications for, of uh, saying things directly and outright. The thought that you can reduce meaning to the message level and ignore the meta message, the meta message level, uh, it's it's a fantasy. That's not how language works. Okay, we so always, we're judging people as people by the way they use language. Yeah, and that brings me to uh, a, I think a really important question. Though I have to just as an aside say that. I'm not sure that there was anything more traumatizing to me as a three-year-old than 
coming to Maine where I, I grew up, but I was born in, in Tennessee and I learned how to talk in Tennessee. I, and, and when I got to Maine, there was a lot about how I communicated that people didn't seem to understand. And, um, I have very vivid memories of having to shift my language patterns and also hearing things that people said, particularly the word wicked, which people from New England will maybe laugh about. But, you know, the first time I heard someone saying something was wicked, something or other, I, I got freaked out because my only association with wicked was some horrible witch. But it turns out that in in Maine anyway, wicked means more or less like very. So if something's <laughs> wicked, wicked awesome, then it's really, really awesome. So, um, yeah, just kind of a funny, funny cross-cultural experience that I had. Um, anyway, so the important question, apart from my silly anecdote, is how do we tune in more to the meta message, particularly in the moment when it's crucial to be understood? It's a great question. I believe awareness of style differences is probably the best thing and the only thing that will uh, um, that we can hope for. We are going to respond automatically. You must mean what I would mean if I spoke in that way in this context. Now, when styles are similar, relatively similar, that's going to be okay. And probably most of the time that we're doing it every minute, every time we talk to someone and they say something, we have some automatic way that we think we know what they mean and, and draw a conclusion about their intentions. But when something goes awry, when you have a negative response, when you think they're reacting in a way that's kind of weird, the hope is that you could step back and ask yourself what's going on. But it's, it's tough to do. And, and then sometimes you can do what I call meta communication, talk about the communication. Um, and an example where I had to do this myself, and again, it's almost embarrassing because it's something I'd written about for decades, but I had this op-ed in the New York Times just about a month ago where I had a friend uh, over for dinner, and she was kept offering to help and then kept getting up and helping. And I really didn't want her to, and I kept telling her not to, and she kept doing it anyway. And I was really frustrated. I was really rattled by it. And normally I wouldn't have said anything, but since I was writing this book about friends, I felt like I needed to know her perspective. So I metacommunicated. I talked to her about it. I told her how I had responded, uh, how it bothered me that she was ignoring my telling her that I really didn't want her to help. And she was astonished and explained to me that in her family, you're expected to help. And when people say, I don't want you to help, they don't mean it. They mean something like, you're a guest and you shouldn't help. Therefore, I appreciate it all the more when you do. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd written extensively about indirectness. It still never crossed my mind that she thought I was being indirect, that she thought I didn't mean it. And it never crossed her mind that I didn't mean it. But we solved it by metacommunicating, by talking about it. And I think m many of us, maybe women especially, but probably all of us, don't like to introduce a contentious note into a relationship or a conversation. So my impulse was not to tell her that what she was doing was bugging me. But I think it served both of us really well to have that conversation. Um, I feel like my consciousness was raised. Um, I, uh, <laughs> and any resentment I might have felt because I thought she was behaving in a way that made no sense that dissipated, and she tells me that it's a huge relief to her to know she doesn't have to do all the work when she goes to somebody's house for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like there's this frame of re reminding yourself not to take everything personally, um, especially when it's perplexing. Um, to recognize, oh, this might not mean what I think it means. This this person might not mean what I think they mean when they're making this request or when they're saying something that I'm finding to be incredibly offensive or hurtful or 
uh, scary even. Um, yeah. Well, realizing what the parameters are is, is helpful. Um, for example, are you a good person by asking questions to show interest? Or are you a good person by not asking questions because they would be intrusive? So, again, coming from my book about women friends, um, a woman told her friend about uh, that her mother was in the hospital and then was hurt that the friend never asked. But they did metacommunicate, and the friend said, well, in my family, that would be considered intrusive. People will tell you if they want to talk about something personal, but you, you shouldn't ask. Or uh, friends that were having taking a walk, one was telling the other about a problem. She was listening, but when they passed something really pretty, like a gorgeous flower, um, she she said, oh, look at that. To her, that didn't mean I'm not listening. I'm not interrupting the story. It's kind of like you're at the dinner table and you're telling a story and somebody needs the salt. They can murmur past the salt. They're not interrupting your story. But the friend was hurt. She thought, you're not listening to me. But the other friend was hurt because she so clearly was. So if they could talk about that, realize for some people, you can throw in interjections and it doesn't mean you're not listening. For other people, you really can't. The listener should be quiet. Um, so just knowing that these differences are, are common makes it possible to uh, to give a friend the benefit of the doubt. Whereas beforehand, it would be self-evident to you that your way of thinking about it is the only way to think about it. Yeah, I have to say, um, in reading your latest book, You're the Only One I Can Tell, um, I had several moments where I was confused, actually, because I think it was that I would read something and I'd be like, oh, okay, that's the way it is. And then in the very next paragraph, <laughs> I'd be like, Oh no! I'm re now. This is how that thing completely malfunctions, you know. And, and it's it's interesting that there are really no hard fast rules around how to communicate. What seems to be a hard and fast rule is assume that that there's more than meets the eye. And um, I'm curious about having those meta conversations. Do you have hints about? ways to invite people into it, particularly as as so often happens when you're having that conversation, you're almost undoubtedly having it with someone who couldn't imagine how anything could be other than how they see the world. So do you have hints on how to invite people into that level of conversation? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question. <clears throat> So I guess I feel like the first thing is be aware that there are these differences so that you can talk about it as a style and not as right and wrong. And then you have to be open to compromise that might not be the one you would have chosen. Uh, people often ask me, this goes way back to You Just Didn't Understand and, and the book before that, um, can people change their conversational styles? Usually what they have in mind is sending their partner in for repair. <laughs> They're not thinking, how can I change my style? Of course they could if they wanted to. <laughs> um, but they're thinking, can I get the other one to change their style? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I think really you can start by saying, I, I'm, 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 I want to talk to you about this because I think there might be some, I think I might not completely understand your perspective. So if you frame it as trying to Listen and understand. I think that will be better. <clears throat> but you do have to realize, and this came up in my book about mothers and daughters, which is called You're Wearing That, and my book about sisters, which is called You're Always Mom's Favorite, um, as well as friends. There were some women who felt you've got to talk about any kind of a problem or point of contention and work it out. And there were others who felt talking about it is a problem in itself. <laughs> um, a yeah. friend who wants to constantly process is oppressive, and I don't want to be that person's friend. Now, of course, with sisters, you can't say, I don't want to be your sister. You, <laughs> you might distance yourself. But I definitely, um, in, in both contexts, talk to people who were frustrated because the friend or the sister 
didn't want to process to talk about it. And, and they felt that you have to or you can't get past it. And so in that context, I would try to raise awareness that it's quite legitimate that other people feel talking about it only makes it worse. It brings up all the um, conflict that I felt in the first place. We're both going to end up stating our perspectives that make the other one angry. And so let's just let it lie, move on. And once the emotions have uh, have um, receded in some way, uh, they may never go away, but receded into the background, then, then we'll just pretend it never happened. So I, I think it, it often comes down to respecting others' differences and respecting that there could be more than one way of approaching both the problem or the interaction about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, a classic relationship problem is one person being conflict avoidant and the other person being someone who engages like that's that's a setup for so many um, problems that people have in relationship. And I could see that both people getting to a point where they feel understood and feel resolution, how that it would help to have acknowledgement that that either one is okay um, in both directions. And, and I think we even, we talked about this in an episode with Sheila Heen, who wrote the book Difficult Conversations um, as part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. And um, we talked about how so much of getting past any sort of disagreement is really about the other the other person. So if you put yourself in your own shoes, it's your ability to help the other person feel like you understand them and like you want to understand them. Yes, absolutely. And I guess it's kind of like what I said earlier, and I'm glad, um, and I know many others are saying something similar, that often our idea of working something out is to convince the other person of our perspective. We want to talk, <laughs> get them <laughs> to understand us, but they want to talk and get us to understand them. <laughs> yeah, so I think if we both come in with, I want to understand your perspective, I want to listen to your perspective, um, the chances of uh, coming out more happy on the other end are, are increased. And I know the psychologists have many methods for this that can be very effective, like actually articulate the other person's perspective yes. because if you keep saying yours, they're going to want to keep saying theirs. And so you're going to want to see yours again. But if you each articulate the other's perspective, then you're starting with that mutual understanding and you'll, you won't have to waste your breath. Yes. Trying to say your perspective over and over again. Right. Right. Yes. And we, we actually, we had an, a great episode with Harville Hendricks and Helen Kelly Hunt talking about, the Imago approach to that kind of dialogue. Um, Haiti Schleifer was on talking about a different flavor of that. Um, I'm curious, this that that idea that we could be trapped in this cycle of wanting to be understood and how that drives people apart reminded me of the topic that you bring up in your book that is called complementary schismogenesis. I, and I'm not sure if I said that right. You did. This idea that you can find yourself in a dynamic where you're driven further and further apart from the other person in the way that you're communicating. Yes. Uh, that term comes from the anthropologist Gregory Bateson, but he used it for cultures in contact. And I've adapted it to everyday conversation. So the idea is, if something is not going well, your impulse is try harder and do more of whatever you're doing. That can drive the other person into more and more extreme examples of the other st of the other style. So very quick examples. Just start with what we were doing with indirectness. Um, say you ask somebody, do you want to have lunch? And they say, oh, I'm, I'm really busy this week. So you ask them again, and they say, I'm not feeling very well this week. And so you start to wonder, are they being indirect? So you're going to try to solve it by making them be direct and say, um, First you were busy, and then you didn't feel well. Um, do you just not want to have lunch with me ever? Well, a person who started by being indirect probably cannot bring themselves to say, 
I don't want to have lunch with you ever. So they will probably become more indirect. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's just been a tough time now. And so you say, well, what is it? And they're going <laughs> to get even more indirect. <laughs> um, or just a couple of other things that we haven't brought up before that are very prone to this uh, com complementary schismogenesis. Uh, let's say you're talking to someone, you tend to talk a bit more loudly uh, than the other does, and, and they tend to talk a bit more softly. So you might raise your voice to set a good example to let them know they should speak up. Well, you're now offending them even more, so they're going to talk even lower because they want to set a good, good example for you. <laughs> and you're going to end up with one shouting. <laughs> so you're talking more loudly than you normally would. They're talking more uh, at a lower volume than they normally would in response to what the other is doing. Um, something that turned out to be very important in, in, uh, conversation with regard to cultural differences, not gender differences, um, is how long a pause is normal between turns. So when this normal length of pause, uh, begins to, uh, when you're approaching it, you'll start to think, Gee, I guess I should take the floor. The other one has nothing to say. But if your sense of pause is somewhat sh shorter, you're going to be interrupting. You're going to think the other person is done when they're not. And they're going to start thinking you have, you don't want to hear them talk. You want only want to hear yourself talk. You're interrupting and you're thinking, what's wrong with this person? Do they <laughs> not have anything to say? Do they not like me? Uh, and, and now you coming from Maine, speaking to me who grew up in Brooklyn, <laughs> I've got to be really careful <laughs> and, and wait perhaps a longer length of time than would normally, uh, feel, feel right to me to make sure that you have nothing to say. And you might have to push yourself to start speaking before it feels completely comfortable. Otherwise, we're going to, by complementary schismogenesis, end up in a situation where I'm doing all the talking, and you never get a word in edgewise. I was going to ask you why you keep interrupting me, but... <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, I've been, I've been holding it back. <laughs> um, what are some other... I like how we're flavoring this soup with possibilities in terms of what what kind of meta messages could be operating what kind of styles could be operating and i'm wondering wondering if there are others in particular that come to mind um around how how people talk to each other um perhaps um you know the difference between rapport and reporting um that's one thing that that comes to mind um but i'm sure you have lots that have been like, these are the things that you got to be aware of because they're most likely happening in your dynamics. Yes. So um, a difference that I wrote about in uh, You Just Didn't Understand was rapport talk mm -hmm. and report talk. So report talk is a conversation where really it's the message level, the meaning of the words that's most important, and it's focused on information, impersonal information. Rapport talk is where um, a lot of what you're saying is to create social connection. And it really doesn't matter that much what the <clears throat> specific answer is. And I did, did there find that women were probably tended to be more likely to do a rapport talk in a situation where a man might do a uh, report talk. Um, but this can happen between friends um, of the same sex. Um, even, even at work, I'll, I'll give you an example where, uh, cause I have a book about the workplace. It's called talking from nine to five, um, where one person felt when you have a business meeting, you should start with personal talk. And the other one feels in a business meeting, get right down to business. That's report talk. Well, the one who is starting with general talk might give the impression, and I had examples where this happened, that, well, there really isn't anything important to talk about. We're not, there's nothing I have to pay that much attention to. This is just a social meeting. And so then when the, that person, the report talk person, gets to the report talk, the other one has kind of switched off and kind of 
figures this isn't all that important because it's coming as an afterthought. Mm. Be an extreme example um, from the workplace. But I'll, I'll give you another example too. It's kind of like report talk and report talk. One of the uh, scenarios from the book you just don't understand that really got a lot of attention and and again I think has kind of become part of the culture. Um, a conversation where a woman tells a man about a problem and he tells her how to fix it. And then she's frustrated. And what I said about it in that book and what is often said about it is she didn't want a solution. She wanted to talk about it. And he's frustrated because he's thinking, why do you want to talk about it if you don't want to do anything about it? And both are frustrated because someone they're close to who should understand how they mean what they say um, seems to be misjudging them. Mm. So I would actually say something somewhat different now. And, and in the book about women friends, I do. I, I really was forced to go back and think about that some more. How might the conversation go if it were women friends? Well, I tell you about a problem. You might say, um, gee, why do you think he said that? And then, well, what did you say after he said that? And what do you think you might do? Yeah, I guess kind of, I, I would probably do the same thing. I'd probably feel the same way, but, but what do you think of doing this? And in the end, you do give advice. So when I say she didn't want a solution, that's probably not accurate. It's just that we don't want the solution right off the bat. Right. Because the very act of talking about it has a meta message of caring. The fact that you're willing to spend time talking to me about my problem means you care about me. And it's a kind of rapport talk. So taking it as, here's a problem, I want a solution, that's approaching it as report talk. And um, so the perhaps the frustration is not so much that she didn't want a solution as that she didn't want it right off the bat because the solution shuts down the conversation. And starting that kind of conversation was probably her motivation in the first place. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm getting this sense, and this comes up with a, another kind of strategy that we don't really have time to talk about today called the ways that we energize our partners. But one element of this strategy, I think gets at, helps us clarify meta messages, which is for for you to reflect what someone, how what someone is, what, let's see if I can say this well. You, For me to reflect, let's say you say something to me, for me to reflect back to you, you just said this to me, and what that means to me is blank. And I think it would be so interesting to use that to flavor an, a conversation, especially when you sense it going awry. So if you were in that typical scenario where, let's say someone just wants to be heard first before the fixing happens, if you were able to say in that moment, wow, like you're, you're offering me these solutions and what that means to me is you don't actually really want to hear about what's going on with me. You just want to get past it. It becomes an opportunity for the other person to say, well, that's not, that's not what I meant at all. Um, and at least maybe opens up, it gives you a window into that dialogue around meaning and how meanings can be misconstrued and, and, and getting at what's important. Like you were just establishing that what's important is setting the stage of, of caring to help frame a conversation where then someone can actually contribute a solution to it. Yes, that's why I feel that understanding these parameters, understanding that they can be different and often are different among speakers of the same language, that's what I see as essential. And then once you have that understanding, you and maybe you with a particular friend or partner um, can come up with a way to handle it. So a quick example um there are many ways that my husband is not typical, and I'm not, and there are many ways that we are. Uh, for example, I'm the one who likes to ask, he's the one who likes to ask directions, and I'd rather use ways or, or a map. Um, but this is one where he is, and I often get frustrated. And he once said to me, I know you don't want a solution, but it's too frustrating for me to listen to you go on and on when I know the solution. So how about I tell you the solution and you listen, 
And then if you want to keep talking about it, you can. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's just as good a compromise as my teaching him to not give me the solution right off the bat. Mm. So the key is that he and I both understand that this is a difference. Then we can come up with all different ways of accommodating that difference. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Um, because your your latest book really focuses on friendship, and friendship is such an important part of, I think, feeling balance in our lives, feeling fed and supported by the community. I'm wondering if you can touch for a moment on the interplay of how we communicate with our friends versus how we communicate with our spouses, our, our beloveds. Many of the patterns that I observe in, in considering conversations among friends were quite parallel to the kinds of things that happen in family relationships and romantic relationships. Um, some of the things that were different had to do with the, the level of uh, choice that goes on with friends. Um, and this can be both good and bad. When, as I said, kind of said earlier, you can decide not to be a friend. You can't decide not to be a sister. Um, you can decide to separate from a romantic partner, but that's quite a big deal. Uh, although cutting off a friendship with um, a same-sex friend or other-sex friend is also um, a very big deal. And I have a lot to say about that because so many of the women that I interviewed, I interviewed 80 girls and women for this book, so many of them told me about cutoffs or what we now call ghosting. Um, a friend suddenly disappears or they decided this friendship is really not good for me. I'm just going to cut it off. Um, and somebody pointed out to me with a romantic relationship, you kind of have to have that closing conversation. I don't think we should see each other anymore because certainly if it's a, um, uh, marriage or, or a uh, living together situation like that, you would have to say, this isn't working. You would have to have that conversation. But it's so common among friends to just cut it off with no closing conversation. No, I decided this isn't working for me because. So I think that that's a huge difference. Um, and I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is, it was so hurtful when people told me that others had cut them off and they didn't know why. The not knowing why was really, really hurtful. On the other hand, it, you could say that it's one of the um, gifts of friendship, that you have more volition, that you can decide this is causing me more pain than it's giving me pleasure and and I want out. So... I guess you can think of it as a positive or a negative thing, but that certainly is a big difference. Yeah, and I will say, too, that some of the more poignant moments in your latest book for me were when the, when the circle did get completed, when, pe when people were able to follow up, you know, when you tell those stories of what they discovered about why cutoffs happened. Um, Yes, um, it, since it is such a common thing, and, and the cause of so much, the cause of so much um, hurt, I do have a bit about it, and yeah, and 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 it could be, maybe this is something in a way about the whole book, or maybe about all my books. It's a great relief to know that something you've experienced has also been experienced by many other people. You're not alone. Nobody's crazy, <laughs> um, but these are inherent in human relationships. Uh, but these cutoffs, yeah, sometimes someone would come back years later and say, I was just going through a tough time then, or uh, I was cutting everybody off at that time. And I have um, an example of uh, my own from high school and very exciting when half a century later, I actually found the person who had cut me off and and discovered that it actually wasn't anything I had done or anything she really uh, was going through, but it was um, her older brother who insisted that she um, end our friendship. Wow. Yeah, I remember I had, reading I had that. actually written about that, that, yeah, if you're a 
young person living at home, older people living with you who have that kind of power over you can can sometimes they're the ones that make the decision, and often they're right. They, they may well see that a certain friend is not good for you, but on the other hand, sometimes sometimes they're just jealous. Mm. Yeah. I, plus, I, I think it's worth highlighting in this moment that I think you might have the title for your next book, uh, You're Not Alone and Nobody's <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be the title of every book. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah, um, before we go, I'm wondering if we can just touch for a moment on the influence of digital communication on how we communicate and, and in particular, how much gets sacrificed by, through texting and Snapchatting and, and, and maybe if you have some ideas on strategies other than don't try to have any meaningful communication that way, um, which is often what I would just say. Um, but but strategies for people to help help them sift through the the possibility for miss, missing the meta message when it's just a few characters on your iMessage that that are is what's doing the communicating. Yes, uh, I do have a chapter on social media, so I'll just say a little bit from that chapter. Um, I believe that all these social media ramp up both the positive and the negative um, of, of friendships. So on the positive side, you can stay in much more constant touch. There's this sense of absent presence so that you feel you're together even though you're not. You um, send these pictures. It's a way of saying, hey, look at that. And you feel as if you were together. Uh, one of the big risks is fear of being left out. Um, we all can be hurt if we discover that our friends are doing things without us. Um, women seem particularly sensitive to that kind of hurt. Well, with social media, your chances not only of knowing what they were doing, but of seeing pictures of what they were doing without <laughs> you <laughs> goes way up. Uh, and it could be you missed it because you, uh, you, maybe you, you were invited, but you couldn't make it. Maybe you missed it because you didn't check your phone in time. Maybe you weren't invited. Um, and but the chances of being exposed to this and being hurt by it are, are uh, ratcheted up. And as you say, all the risks of uh, missing the meta message because, or mistaking the meta message because you don't have tone of voice, facial expression. Although we're extremely creative at using emojis, emoticons, memes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And in fact, there's more, and pictures, there's more and more use of, of that. My students look at all the creative uses of ha, 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 LOL. <laughs> <laughs> and they, oh, uh, all these ways that we say, don't take what I just said, literally. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that uh, people can be very creative about it. Maybe one of the biggest risks is uh, the sense that is, is again, it's a kind of conversational style difference. One friend thinks texting is a good way to talk about problems. The other thinks it's not. So she gives minimal responses. The one who's talking about the problem that way thinks, uh, you know, we, I, where, where's my where's my supportive, uh, caring friend? Um, and and of course, I think you kind of implied this in your question, just the sense of overload. So many different platforms that you have to check the fragmentation of attention, uh, the temptation to be looking at your phone rather than the person that you're with. And, and all of these are challenges that we have to be aware of and, and, and find ways to overcome. Yeah, my hope is that as people become more sensitized to how it's affecting them, that it actually spawns even more authenticity and integrity. Um, because it's it's really calling people to the table to to be more aligned in terms of how they communicate because the consequences are are so um, easily uh, seen or experienced um, of of not being clear. You know, I, I often find myself defending the use of social media because um, I think it has a lot of positive positive things that we can lose track of. There are many people who can be more authentic when they're typing on a screen than if they're facing a person. 
they many people find it easier to reveal their real feelings, something personal, some emotion, when they don't have a person staring them down. Mm-hmm. Um, many close friendships have evolved. Some who never meet, just by being, just by talking um, on the screen, Facebook or or some other such medium, and and reveal things they wouldn't reveal to somebody that's in the same room with them. So I think it's just a matter of awareness and uh, finding what works and tempering, you know, if you feel that things are becoming out of hand. Uh, but often those people who have their, are looking at their screen and rather talking to you, rather than talking to you are really importantly avoiding being rude to the person who texted them and needs an answer right away. And so a bit of it might be being more tolerant of that. But then I know there are groups of people who, when they get together, they all put their phones in the middle. And the first one who grabs his phone pays the bill. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a a great solution. Um, And I can already imagine the meta meaning conversations. Like, so, honey, when you're... When you're texting on your phone and it's we're in bed together, what that means to me is, you know, and then then you get to get more clear about it. Well, you certainly can't have parameters that you agree on for your relationship. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we hope. That's what we hope. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm I'm just so appreciative of your time and your wisdom and and for me it's just such a treat considering how much of an impact your work had on me oh so long ago. And it was really um, fun to revisit today, 20-something years later, and just see how your work has permeated the way that I think, the way that I communicate and interact, and, and the way that I hope to, to help others, um, both as a coach and through this podcast. So just thank you so much for being here with us today and for such a vast contribution to our knowledge about how we communicate with each other. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive? either for a future or past guest, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.